the age of creation in geological ages. I don't have a problem with that. I'll tell you what. I mean, you don't even have you don't even have the sun and the moon until it was the third or fourth day. Fourth day, right? So it's, it's I, I don't think we have to argue that these have to be 24-hour days. But again, I know I know there's people that are adamant about that. There's Christians out there that would say, I can't believe Gary's getting liberalized. So, you know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just saying that I just I, I think there's room for that without violent, without giving in evolution. I'm not saying in the, without giving in a theistic evolution. There's creation. There has to be creation. And this is important because Jesus taught creation, and if there's not creation, Jesus is wrong. We have a real problem. Okay. Right. So there has to be creation. Bible teaches it. Jesus affirms it. We can't give in to evolution. I hear Christians say, oh, I think theistic evolution. You cannot give in to evolution. Because then Jesus is wrong. We cannot be some guy and we don't have a savior anymore. So this is big. Okay? Door. No. No. There is no theistic evolution. God created everything after its own kind. We have to hold that ground, guys. We have to hold that. Yes. Because the gospel itself will write on that. Do you understand what I mean by that? Because yes. Jesus affirmed it. Yes. And if he was wrong, he cannot be the Son of God. We, cannot have, we don't have a Savior anymore. So we have to hold the ground there. Alright? Okay. Let's go to something else. That first page, I want you to see the flow again. God exists. Which page are you on? I'm on the first page I gave you, which is light blue. I just want you to again see the flow. I should have the same color as you have. That would be a lot more, make a lot more sense than me having white. <laughs> okay, God exists. Now, since God exists, miracles are possible. Now you have a handout that says miracles possible or impossible. Did you grab that? Okay. And I just want to touch on part of this. And I need to, we need to move a little faster. Green sheep. Miracles possible or impossible. Okay, now, A. I don't know, Roman number one. Worldviews which deny the possibility of miracles. Miraculous events are not possible in a naturalistic universe. In a naturalistic universe, nature is the whole show. Nature is all it is, ever, ever was, or ever will be. Where nature is the whole show, show, there is no supernatural realm. Where there's no supernatural realm, there can be no supernatural events, miracles, hence there are no miracles in the naturalist universe. So if somebody presupposes a naturalist universe, they've already presupposed miracles aren't possible. Right? And so we need to, you know, that's why we want to start with a theistic guy. Because the miracles are possible. All right, our miracles, miracles be miraculous events are not possible in a pantheistic universe. Now, pantheistic means is pan is all theistic. He is the O God. God and the universe are the same. All the universe is God, and God is the universe. That's what pantheism is, okay? All right, so in a pantheistic universe, the natural and the supernatural are one. God equal nature. Where the natural and the supernatural are indistinguishable, Miracles are not identifiable. I.e., miracles cannot be distinguished from nature. And where miracles are not identifiable, they cannot be known to have occurred. 
Indeed, no miracle can occur, for all is one with nature. Hence, there can be no miracles in the pantheistic world. Alright, so C, miraculous events are not possible in a deistic world. Remember, the deistic God is the God who just created it all, natural laws and everything, and let it run, went on vacation. I went and took a nap or something. That's a deistic God, alright? A deistic universe is one where God exists but never causes miracles because A, he has no power and or interest in performing miracles and B, he finds it impossible to violate the inviolable natural law that he has made. So again, I'm pointing all this out to say we want to start with a theistic God, a God independent of his universe, a God who created his universe, and then miracles possible. Right? So we have God supernatural enough to make a universe. He's supernatural enough to do miracles and to intervene in his universe. Okay, so the worldview too, which allows for the possibility of miracles, is theism. The argument for miracles in the theistic universe is based on the nature of God and natural law. Natural law. This is a world, the world that operates by natural law. There is a world that, not, that operates by natural law, i.e., in a regular, predictive way. The world of sense experience. Okay, so there is natural law. We agree to that. We just say that's not all there is. Okay, God, an all good and all powerful God exists beyond nature. The theistic God differs from nature as opposed to pantheism. Panentheism, which I haven't explained to you, and naturalism. Do y'all know what panentheism is? Okay, pan pantheism is God as an all. Okay, panentheism is kind of new. What? Panentheism is kind of new. Oh. It's actually taught over at SNU in the theology department. What it says is, is this that uh, God and the universe are the same, but they are evolving together. God is infinite potentially, but actually he's finite, but he's becoming more. What they did is they included evolution. See, evolution, since, since they see God as uni and the universe is the same, and they think the universe is evolving, therefore God's evolving. That's a new. And the theology is probably teach this. And anyway, I didn't want to get off into all that, but I thought you guys would be interested in that. So, let's go back to uh, Roman numeral 2, the worldview which allows for the possibility of miracles of theism. Go to number 2, God. All good and all powerful God exists beyond nature. The theistic God differs from nature as opposed to pantheism, panentheism, and naturalism. The theistic God has concern for and control over the world as opposed to deism. The theistic God is concerned because he is omnibenevolent, which is all good. Basic God is in control because he's all-knowing and all-powerful. Okay. So if you have an all-good and all-knowing, all-powerful God, then it makes sense that he would, he would do miracles. B, an omnipotent God can do anything that he's really possible to do. Miracles are possible in a created, contingent universe. Nothing created is inviolable since God is causing its very existence. Okay. 
So anyway, two, hence miracles are possible for a theistic guy. That's all I want you guys to get. Miracles are possible in the theistic universe. So I'm not going to go over the rest of this handout, but you can read it It's on your own. I, I don't need to go over it because I don't think it's really necessary. If you basically prove theism, then miracles are possible in the theistic universe. Anyone follow that? Yeah. If God created it all, and all good, benevolent, um, powerful God created it all, then for Him to intervene in it miraculously is perfectly reasonable. That's all, again, that's all we're trying to get is reasonable, right? Right. Okay. All right, now back to your one sheet. I want you to see, see the flow here. Number four, we want to show the New Testament now as a historically reliable record of the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, now you have a handout that says it's a New Testament historically reliable, and it is what color? Gray. Gray. Here it is right here. Everyone needs to get that handout up. Again, all we're trying to do at this point is we're not trying to argue that this, the Bible is the Word of God at this point. All we're trying to do is show the Bible is historically reliable. Okay? That's all we're trying to show at this point in the uh, progression of thought. Alright, so let's look at that handout. What would it take for you to believe that something in the past really happened? How about if you had confidence that you had the actual report concerning the event? How about if you knew the person who wrote the report was honest and reliable? How about if you had other ways to verify the writers, what they said in that report was true? You had another source. Would that be enough for you to believe that that actually happened? Most people would say, yeah, that's reasonable. I mean, if I had the actual report that was written, and if, I, and if I knew that the, the people who wrote that report were honest and reliable, and I had other ways to confirm that report outside of that, that would be reasonable to believe that that actually happened. Okay? okay if you got that, that's all we're going to do in this section, is we're going to prove those three points. Okay? I want to show you that the Bible we have, we, we have the actual report of what happened. And I want to show you that the ones who wrote the Bible are honest and reliable people, and then we're going to say that we'll show that there are outside sources that confirm these writings as well. Okay? okay. So we'll go back. So let's go ahead and start. First of all, do we have the actual report? Now, first thing you have to acknowledge we do not have the original manuscripts. We don't. We do not have the original manuscripts written by the original writers. What we have is very early and very many copies. Now, before that alarms any of you, I'm going to give you an illustration. If you got a telegram, and the telegram said, you have won $5,000, but the word dollar only had one L, not two. Would you know what that said? Okay, what if you got two telegrams? One telegram said you won $5,000, and it, and it only had one L instead of two L's for dollar. And it said, when it said one, it said, it said W-O-N-N. Now you have a jet two of them now. Would you put those two together and think you know what this says? What if you had ten? Ten, ten of these... Uh, 
telegraphs have all said you've won $5,000, but all 10 of them, and two of them there were errors, and seven of them there weren't, and then one of them was an error, but it was different than the other two, but you had 10. And you laid them out in front of you, and you were signing and said, I'm trying to decipher what this says. I found an error, but I'm not sure. I think I got 10. I think I can figure out what this says. Would you, would you come to the conclusion? I think I know what they meant when they sent the telegram. I got 10 copies. I think they meant I won $5,000. Would you all agree with that? Yeah. What if you had 5,300 telegraphs that said you won $5,000? <laughs> 5,300. Would you be able to set those in front of you and say, I think I can determine what this means? I think I know what the message says? Even though there's a few of them that have a couple errors in it? That's what we have. We have 5,300 New Testament copies. Some of them, have, some of them do have some errors in it. And we, we actually know what some of these errors are. They're easy to find. By the way, there's no theological, there's no theological doctrine anywhere in this that is that is part of where there's an error. And again, we're talking about 99.99% all in agreement. We're talking about a 0.01 or 0.001% or something. We're talking about. But we even we even can you set we can set all these documents and know where the errors will be made. How do they do copies in ancient world? Do you guys know? Handwritten. And so you got, I want you to picture a monk by candlelight. By himself. He has a copy here, and he's writing a new copy. He's looking. He's tired. Sometimes we have some documents that they wrote the same sentence twice. You think we can figure that one out? Or they wrote a word that looked like a word. Again, this is very rare, but we, we, there are some times. So we call these errors of sight. But we have them. Not very many, but there's some. Then we have, sometimes they would have 30 monks in a room. They all got candles. And you got the head monk reads a sentence, and they all read it. Then he reads another sentence, and they all read it. So we also have errors in hearing we can find a word that sounds like another word. We also have 5,300 copies, right? To be able to go back to that copy and go, we know what mistake this guy made. And then he was part of a group of guys that were copied. So, we, so what I'm saying is, first time you hear, we don't have the originals, we have copies. It's like, oh, this is, oh, I thought we had the real Bible. We do. We have. We know exactly what that Bible says. We have it. We have 5,300 copies. We, we, it's easy for us to determine what the errors are. It's not a problem. So when somebody goes on the smoke screen and says, and I had, I was talking to an English professor one time about the Lord, and he said, you don't even have the original you know, manuscripts. And I was like, therefore, he won the argument. I'm like, wait a second. Let's, let's, let's go over this for a minute, you know? We, we, we do know what the original said. We, we, we have enough information to determine exactly what they said. Okay? Alright. Let's look at your notes here. First of all, I want you to see this chart. I want you to notice a comparison. It's funny to me that these 
these type of documents, ancient documents, and we have a certain number of copies of that they don't, they don't debate yeah. the authenticity of these documents. Yeah. But I want you to know this comparison. Let's take, uh, which one do we want to take? Let's take one. Let's take Plato. Plato wrote between 427 and 347 BC. He lived. The earliest copy we have of one of his writings is 900 AD. Y'all see the time span there? Between the original and the copy? 1200 years. And we have seven. Only seven to work with. Now, the time between the original and the copy matters, right? If you've got a long time between the original and the copy, that's time for, for air to enter in. You've got 1,200 years and only seven copies. Okay? Let's take another example. Let's go down to, uh, let's just go down to Aristotle, another common name, familiar name. When did he write? Between 384 and 322 B.C. Earliest copy, 1100 A.D. 1400 years between the original and the, and the earliest copy we have, and he only got 49. You don't hear a whole lot of people arguing against what Plato and Aristotle really said, do you? Okay, now let's go down to A. Greek manuscripts, 5300. Manuscripts of early versions, other words like other translations of the early of the, of the early manuscripts like the Latin Vulgate and so forth. We have uh, twenty four thousand nine hundred seventy two of those, and so there's there's a chart I don't want to go through all that, but it gives you an idea of what we have. It's humongous. And then we have the early church fathers, number three, the early church fathers' quotations. You know, when and when they, we got guys in the second and third century quoting all these scriptures and their writings, Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian, these guys, Sibius. So, this whole idea that do we have the actual report, you know, this is we, we have. There's no comparison to what we have compared to other ancient literature. No comparison. We have early, early, early copies, and we have copies in the second century. So we're talking about stuff written in the first century, and we got copies in the second and third century, a hundred years apart, as opposed to a thousand or twelve hundred, fourteen hundred years apart, and we got fifty-three hundred copies. And just to kind of explain how this works, you got. Some places you've got where well, there's a copy, we have a real early manuscript, and we know certain copies of that manuscript have been made. And we have another early manuscript, and we know what copies are of that manuscript made. And so a lot of this can be traced real easily where these copies all go to and what manuscripts are early. In. And these guys have uh, done a great job. In fact, if you want to read a book on this, let me just, there's a book written by F.F. Uh, Bruce that is entitled The Reliability of the New Testament Manuscripts. Excellent book. If you want to send us a small little paperback, you read it on vacation or something. The Reliability of the New Testament Manuscripts. 
every time you talk and, and, and quote another book, it's more homework for me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, suppose you want to go above and beyond to get extra credit for the class. Okay. B, the day of the New Testament manuscripts. Uh, one. The day of the original composition of the New Testament books. Every book of the New Testament is written by a baptized Jew between the 40s and the 80s and the 1st century A.D. Very probably sometime between 1575 A.D. Apostle John, uh, as he wrote his, probably the last one, uh, was toward the, toward the end of that. Okay, the date of the copies of the New Testament manus manuscript copies. Uh, we have fragments of originals within 30 years after they're written. We have whole books within 100 years and most of the New Testament within 200 years. Compared to other ancient documents, we have 1,000 years between the original and copies. How about the accuracy of the New Testament manuscripts? For the New Testament, we have 52 5300. It's between 52 and 5300. Greek manuscripts which contain, some of them have 101%. Of the original New Testament, there's, there's other words that got everything in there, but there's something that that someone might have even added. 100% of the truth of the original New Testament, we have some that, that they have everything in there, we have some that are missing some things, very little bit. And so we can say with confidence, again, back to my illustration with the telegraph, we can say with confidence what we have, and the more you learn about it, the more confidence you have in it. I remember in seminary, the first time I took a class in this uh, textual criticism, and on the fact that we didn't have the originals, I remember going, oh no. <laughs> you know, and I, at first it shook my faith up a little bit, like, we don't have the originals, we got copies. And then the more you learn about what we have, again, like that illustration telegraph, the more confident you are that what you have is you have the Word of God sitting on most of your laps right now. And the, and the translations we have are fantastic. I mean, what they do with the King James in 1611 is phenomenal. And what we have, I think the New American Standard and NIV are tremendous. The Bible Standard, we have tremendous translations. And so it's fantastic what we have. And so uh, really rejoice and have confidence in you know, what you have. You have, you have the Word of God, you can be confident. You have, you, you know what was written. You know what was written. Okay, let's go to number uh, two. Now, what about these guys who wrote them? Is, are, are they reliable? Well, let's go principle to follow. One must listen to the claims of the document under consideration or analysis and not assume fraud or error unless the author disqualifies himself by contradictions or known factual inerrancies. In other words, it's interesting, you know, most people approach the Bible like the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. That's how it's approached by most of the world, isn't it? And so as soon as there is a... By the way, tomorrow I'm going to be preaching about Belshazzar. Belshazzar is a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar, for centuries, there's no historical record of this guy. By the way, not until recently. No historical record of this guy. So, so, so the... So the uh, you know, the, the liberals who wanted to say the Bible had errors, they were like, there you go. This guy never existed. We don't see his name anywhere. And that was a big argument. Well, guess what? A little bit more archaeological digging, a little bit more excavation, guess what they found? Belgian. They found his name. 
Sure enough. Now he's, there was like, after Nebuchadnezzar, the crown went to four different people and all kinds of intrigue and drama and murder. And eventually ends up on the head of Belshazzar, his grandson. And, and again, the Bible, every, you know, there's been so many times that, that there, the whole city, in fact, there's whole cities that the Bible talked about that aren't there. And they're like, see, I was wrong. And then all of a sudden, a little more digging. Uh oh, we found the city. In fact, the the very home that the handwriting in the wall in Manual 5, they've excavated that wall. And what's interesting is, is, is they said that Manual 5 talks about plaster. It says the word plaster. The hand comes and writes, you know, many, many, tickle, parson, some type of, they wrote in a way that's probably hard to decipher. Anyway, so it says it happened on a plaster wall. Well, you got these guys that want to have a late date for Daniel because they don't want Daniel to really be a prophet. So they said Daniel had to be written after all these things happened. It said the 6th century B.C. It was the 2nd century. Well, and they said one of the arguments is because there wasn't such thing as plaster back then. Plaster comes in the 2nd century. Well, guess what they discovered when they excavated the Grand Hall of Nebuchadnezzar, which was, it had a little niche, little niche in it where the king would have sat, and right behind the niche, guess what that wall was made of? Plaster. Which makes a great background for a handwriting on doesn't it? Plaster wall. I'm just saying that, <clears throat> that these uh, archaeological finds continue to prove the accuracy of the Bible, but we've got honest men who are given, you know, an accurate account. They use, first of all, they use primary source material. You know, you got, uh, you know, Luke went and talked to the actual people when he wrote, right? So, so they're not they're not getting, you know, second and third, you know, they're not hearing it through the grapevine. In other words, they went and talked to the very people that are getting the account, or they were there themselves. Okay, we see that in Luke, we see it in Second Peter, First John, and John. Okay, now what about their reliability? Are these reliable guys? First of all, reliable means they're honest and accurate. Are they honest? Well, they taught and lived honesty. Okay, they taught honesty and they lived honestly, and they they died for what they believed to be true. So, I mean, and so they're honest. I mean. You could say that you could say that it's possible to be honest and be accurate. All we're arguing right now is they're honest. And so, are they accurate? Well, that's the two. The authors were accurate. The number of witnesses was great. Five hundred saw the resurrected Christ at one time, according to First Corinthians fifteen six. The time of their witness was long. They were with them for three and a half years, and the nature of their witness was firsthand. We have first-hand witnesses. All right, so we'd have to say, yeah, if they're honest and they're accurate, then they ought to be lying. So we have the original source. We have accurate and honest writers. Let's go to the last part. Is it confirmed by archaeology? Okay, I already gave you some examples of that. So I won't do that right now. Look on our conclusions. Uh, Let's Okay, some of these were confirmed 
all heard of Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. I have his whole, all of his works. And a lot of, a lot of the stuff that we see in the Bible, he also confirmed in his historical writing. Jesus was crucified with Pontius Pilate, Passover time. He is believed by his disciples of risen from the dead. The Jewish leaders charged Christ with sorcery. He believed he was born of adultery. These are all confirmed outside writings. The Judean sect of Christianity could not be contained, but spread from Jerusalem to Rome. This is all confirmed. Nero and other Roman rulers bitterly persecuted and martyred early Christians. This is all confirmed outside writings. These early Christians denied polytheism, lived dedicated lives according to Christ's teachings, and worshipped him only. So we have a lot of uh, other writings that do confirm this. How about archaeology? This is a Jewish archaeologist says this. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. The Bible historicity is confirmed by the almost incredible, accurate, historical memory of the Bible, and particularly to when it was fortified by archaeological fact. In other words, every, you know, we love archaeology. We love it. I mean, do some more. Because the more you dig, the more it just shows everything the Bible says is, is accurate. So dig some more. We're not the least bit insecure about archaeology. We love it. And, and so it's, uh, it's confirmed. What we want to say is that we have, it is reasonable, again, it is reasonable to conclude that what we have is a historically reliable document in the Bible. That's all we're trying to get to right now. So based on that, based on the fact that we have confidence, we have the actual source, confidence that those who wrote it were reliable, accurate, honest, and confidence that we have other sources outside of it that confirm it. So it's reasonable for us to conclude that we have an account, an accurate historical account of what happened. All right? Okay, go back to your sheet now. Now one sheet, I want you to see the next step here. Okay, so in this historical Bible document, what did Jesus teach about himself? Did he teach that he was God come in the flesh? Alright, so let's go ahead and start that at least before lunch. What color is that? Salmon color. Okay, right here in case you never caught a salmon. <laughs> okay. Examination of the claims for the deity of Christ. Okay? Jesus' own claims to be God. Let's start there. Jesus claimed to be Yahweh. Go ahead and let's look at some of these verses. Turn your Bible. Remember, this is the burning bush story. Exodus 3.14. Somebody get that for me, would you? Somebody get John 8.58. And I will have you guys read those out loud. Whoever's got Exodus 3.14, raise your hand and let you start reading. This is a test. Genesis, Exodus. 314. Read it out loud, will you? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are. Say to Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay. So the word probably was Yahweh. Well, we only have uh, the consonants, and so we are, but it was passed on uh, orally. 
you guys know when a uh, the Hebrew Bible has no constant, has no no bounds. Original Hebrew, original Hebrew Bible has no bounds. Everything, it's all constants, it's all passed on orally with the vowel. Everyone knew it, how to say the words, they knew it because it's all passed on. But every time they came to the four letters for Yahweh, they wouldn't say Yahweh. Why? Yeah, they said they were violate the first commandment. Using the Lord's name in vain, they didn't want I mean the second name in vain. They didn't want to risk that, right? So when they came to Yahweh, they said Adonai. Even when it said Yahweh, when I read it, they said Adonai. Now in your in your English version, if it's Yahweh, it'll be L O R D all in caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh. If it says it's capital L, little O, little R, little D, then it's then it's probably Adonai. But every time, even when it was all caps, or in that case, Hebrew, when it was Yahweh, they said Adonai. They want to run the risk of using the Lord's name in vain. Now, in 600 A.D., they added the vowel points. That's in 600 A.D. to help people know how to say the word. But when they added the vowel points to the word Yahweh, they added the vowel points to the word Adonai. Why? Make sure you say Adonai. Don't say Yahweh. It's the unspeakable. If you take the consonants for Yahweh and add the vowel points for Adonai, you get Jehovah. Jehovah. So that's why I don't. I, I put Jehovah in his hat. I don't like his people use it, but I really don't like to use Jehovah. That, that's not his name. His name's Yahweh. And anyway, but it's, it's interesting how that came about. So, where am I? Okay, his name is I Am. John 8 50, who's got it? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Okay, now, do any of your Bibles say I am and then say he? Anybody? You might have a Bible that says, I am he. Because sometimes they'll add that, they'll add an italicized he. And the reason it's italicized is because it's not in the text. You know, in the Gospel of John, all the times that Jesus, when Jesus says, I am, you know, when they came to arrest Jesus in the Gospel of John, they came to arrest him. And, and, and when Jesus says, I am, they all fall down. Now, if you were one of those soldiers, would you have double thought what you're doing at that point? He says, I am, and they just knock to the ground. Right? But in your text, it says, he says, he says, he says, I am he. But he does say, I am he. But he will be italicized in your text. Because they added that to smooth out the English. But, you, but you, move, you lose the whole oomph of what he said. When he said, I am, what does he say? He, he's, he's, making, he's making a statement that I am Yahweh. I'm using the name of Yahweh to speak of myself. Before Abraham was, and say, I was there. Before Abraham was, I am. And the I am statements in the Gospel of John are all about deity. Even I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. This is all about deity. Okay? He makes this claim. 
Now replace this. Okay. All right, B. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Let's look at some of these. Mark 2, 5, 7, 10, 11. I tell you what, let's just do this. Let's just do John 5. Let's just do it easier. John 5, let's do the, the 22 through 29. Let's read that whole section. John 5, 22 through 29. Who's got it? Just start reading when you get it. Verse first. Go. <laughs> for, not, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I said to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I said to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave us the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Okay, so you see, he's, he's making himself equal. He says, the Father, the Son, is the Father, the Son. He's making him equal, self, equal with God in power and authority and so forth. So he claims equality. In fact, you remember, they, they wanted to stone him one time. And he called himself a son of God, right? Mm-hmm. He said, you're making yourself equal. Mm-hmm. So he's making a claim, he, and he knew what claim he's making. He's making it purposely. I claim to be Messiah God. We know Isaiah 9 6 talks about Messiah will be mighty God. He makes it, he, he calls himself, calls himself the Christ. Right? He, uh, I'm just going to have to kind of skip some of these. Jesus accepted worship. Only God is to be worshipped, right? He was worshipped, accepted worship. He, the authority of Jesus' commands, he gave commands as. As, 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 as the Word of God. Remember the Sermon on the Mount when he'd say, uh, You have heard. Uh, and then he'd say, he'd say it, it, it is written, but then he'd say, uh, hey, But I say to you, Well, who are you? you know, he's taking a position of, of authority, of divine authority, when he speaks like that. Okay? Let's see. How about let's just look at F for a second? As the cults jump all over these. Some alleged counterclaims of Christ's deity. Like when he says, My Father is greater than I. How would you respond when someone says, Therefore, he, Jesus is saying he's not God? What would you say to that? Jesus said, He said the Father is greater than I. What does that mean? You want to take a shot at it? Well, that's humility. You know, what the answer is. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But also, I think you have to distinguish between when he's, he's talking about the Father, he's talking about the Son, he's talking about two persons, that he has submitted himself to the Father. In other words, not in essence, not in nature, he is God, but he's, he's actually submitted himself to the person of the Father as the Son. In a sense, in rank. 
not in nature. It's real important that we distinguish between the nature of God and the persons of the Trinity. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent sent the Holy Spirit. There is is some order and rank in this triune God. But yet, the essence and nature is consistent. Three persons, one God. There are different categories. Three persons, there's one category, person. One God, one essence, one nature, one stuff. God, okay? So there's no contradiction since there are different categories. Three persons, one God. Okay, what about Jesus saying he didn't know the time he'd be coming back? What do you say about that? That would, that would be the answer to you guys just over here. He does it to himself. He empties himself of divine prerogatives. The prerogative to, to know. He empties himself. He chooses to, to operate on earth as a man by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the mystery to us, how that all works. But he chose to do that. That's why he does many miracles in the baptism. Until the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and then he goes to the wilderness, and then he does miracles. He chooses to do what he does on the earth as a man by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, when Jesus said, uh, when he says that only God is good, by the way, he didn't, he didn't say he wasn't good. He just said only God was good, didn't he? I think it's a point where the rich young ruler is trying to get the rich young ruler to realize who he's talking about. He's talking about, you're talking to the Messiah. He says, good, good, good teacher. Remember, he says, good teacher? He said, good, only God is good. See, the master teacher, he's trying to get him to recognize who he's talking to. He's talking to the Messiah, God in the flesh. He didn't say he wasn't good. He said, only God is good. He's trying to get him to just take him through and understand him. And of course, again, you have him quoting uh, Mark 15 34 on the cross. He's quoting uh, Psalm 22 when all the sin, shame, and guilt and mankind is laid upon him. He absorbs that judgment. He feels, he feels forsaken by God the Father because he was. But again, he's talking to the Father here. He's not saying he's not God by saying this. Okay. Uh, so we have so Jesus does make claims to be God what about the disciples their claim he was given first of all in their writings he's given the names of deity I'll tell you what I want to do I really want to look at some of these I don't want to rush this so we're going to take a lunch break and come back right here under the claims of Jesus' disciples and the writings of the New Testament about him as deity because I want to show you guys some things I think you're going to like to see about how the Old Testament that referred to Yahweh is then quoted to refer to Jesus in the New Testament time and time and time again. And this is not part of the cult's training program. They don't get this training program. And so if you go, so anytime you deal with a cult, you go to, if you know these Old Testament passages that are used to refer to Jesus in the New Testament, and you go to the Old Testament, like Jehovah Witnesses and say, who's this talking about? And the Old Testament said Jehovah. I said, I agree. I said, who's then you go to the New Testament where it's quoted, he's talking about Jesus. Now, who's he talking about here? Jesus. Yeah, it is. The quote referring to Jehovah, you just agree to the Old Testament, is now referring to Jesus in the New Testament. And I do that over and over and over again using their Bible. So you got their Bible, and you go and you show in their Bible where it talks about God and says Jehovah. 
says Yahweh, but oh, says Jehovah, and said, okay, now let's see that quote in the New Testament. Who's referring to? Jesus. About that time, the trainer wants to leave. <laughs> the trainer says, we need to go now. And that's when I, I'll say to the trainee, I'll say, I want you to know you're involved in the cult. And you need to get out of this. Then I say to the trainer, and I charge you in the name of Jesus, I teach you false doctrine. I mean, I don't say any more, any more loud than that, but, uh, but remember Paul told Timothy to charge certain men to stop teaching strange doctrine. Mm-hmm. So after that point, before they leave, I will do that. And leave, and just leave that where it may be. Because, uh, I mean, we're talking about it, people's eternal destinies at stake here. We need to take it seriously. Amen? Amen. Amen. How about lunch break? Okay, guys, it's, it's, it's coming right for noon. We'll be back here at 1230, and we'll continue, all right? Let's take a break. Glory of our great God and Savior, comma, Jesus Christ. Now, the old witnesses who, who violate Greek grammar rules move to come. And what do you think they move? Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God, come and save Christ Jesus. I had a, a guy that was the leader of the Way International. And he brought UTA and they were planning a new movement. The Way International doesn't believe in the deity of Christ. And he, and he was showing me the, their translation into the comma. I said, well, that violates Greek grammar, which you just did there. And I spent three hours, I got Greek grammar books out, and this guy was pretty well educated, pretty sharp. And there's a, there's, a, there's a Greek grammar rule called the Granville Sharp Rule. And, and everywhere in the Bible where this rule applies, you know exactly where to put the comma. And I'm not getting into a lot of Greek grammar. Except here they move it. They move it because it's their theology. They move it. But it's a violation. It's kind of like uh, in John 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, and then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father. Right? Clearly talking about the incarnation of Christ. In the beginning was the Word. He was in the beginning. He was with God, there's Trinity, and he was God. So you have different, and you saw the different persons, but the one essence. But what they do, the witnesses, and the word was a God. Which I don't know what that means. But somehow they think it's less than deity. Problem is, they have to again violate great Greek grammar to do this. There's another rule, it's called Caldwell's Rule. And, 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 you, and you don't just can't just it needs to be written just like it's written in our translation and we actually a couple of friends of mine who teach New Testament Greek they're more acquaintances than friends but guys that I know are trying to find the person who did the Greek did the translation of the Jehovah Witness Bible and just have a discussion with them and they could not, and, 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 and they, they could not find the guy, and no one would give him up, whoever he was. And say, let's just have a talk. How did you come about this? Because they don't want to have that talk. Because they want to get what they want to get out of it, and they're not being 
not being uh, forthright in the translation. Anyway, let's go to, uh, let's just take a couple others here. John 1 1, I just did. That was, that was, I think John 1 1. If I can only go to one verse, I'd probably go to John 1 1 and 14. Because it tells the whole story right there. I think you can get Trinity out of it and everything. Uh, that's probably enough on that. Let's go to F. Jesus' disciples called him the creator of the universe. Okay? And G, according to Jesus' disciples, he was obeyed and worshipped by angels. So this whole idea, in fact, the author of Hebrews is trying to show that Jesus is superior to angels. Because some there are people are trying to say he's at like an angel level. And he's superior to the angels. And then H, some alleged counterclaims against the selfless claims. Firstborn, we talked about that. Beginning of creation, we kind of talked about that too. Okay, conclusion. There are three possible alternatives. Look at that chart in the appendix. Uh, do I have it? Yeah, on the very last page. Here's our two alternatives. Follow this chart. Jesus claims to be God. Either they're false or they're true. Now, if they're true, then He is Lord and God, and you can accept or reject Him. If his, claim, if his claims were false, then He either knew they were false or He didn't know they were false. If He knew they were false, then He's making deliberate misrepresentation. It means He's a liar, a hypocrite, has a demon. He was a fool. Was a fool for He died for it. If He did know His claims were false, then He's sincerely deluded and He's a lunatic. What's interesting is people want to say, no, 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 he was a good teacher. He was a great teacher. He just wasn't God. Well, that's not, that doesn't make any sense because here's what he taught. And so if he isn't who he said he was, then he's either a liar or a lunatic. But he can't be a great teacher unless he is who he says he is. Nobody follow that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's go to... The substantiation of Christ's claim to be God threefold. Remember we said that Jesus, here's where we're trying to go with this thing, that Jesus claimed to be God and then he proved it. Here's his proof. He proved it three ways. A, by fulfilling the prophecy. B, by living a sinless and miraculous life. And C, by his resurrection. Alright? And then all this is the breakdown of it. And I'm so much time I'm going to take on this. <clears throat> not going to take very much time because time is going fast. Alright. So under A. Jesus' unique fulfillment of prophecy is evidence of his deity. Some of the most significant predictive prophecies which Christ fulfilled are he's born of a woman, born of a virgin. Born 483 years after 444 B.C. And when we get to Daniel 9, we're going to have fun with this. Because this is amazing. Daniel 9 is leading up, has led a number of Jews to faith in Jesus and Messiah. And right now, in fact, I was just talking to a Messianic rabbi friend, those of you that came to our, our Seder, remember Rabbi Marty Cohen. Well, I was talking about Daniel 9, and he says that there's a group in Israel right now that they put Daniel 9 to just an audio recording and are giving it out in so many 
Jews are coming in faith in Jesus and Messiah through Daniel 9 because they're having to think through that period of time, that date. You know, we're given the date of when he's, when he's going to come on the scene. We're told how many years after this decree is made in the book of Daniel. We're told, and that happens to be the very time that Jesus of Nazareth is born. And this is causing a quite a stir in, uh, in Israel right now. There's, there's some, some big time rabbis that are has been converted by this. So we have to get into nine well fun with that. But. Okay. Uh, also he's prophesied to be the seed of Abraham, to be of the tribe of Judah, to be of the house of David, to be born in Bethlehem. Now, could he just know these prophecies and make sure to fulfill them himself? Kind of hard to do the boarding one. Born in Bethlehem, one wasn't it? Anointed by the Holy Spirit, preceded by a messenger, you know, Elijah-like messenger, John the Baptist. Ministry of miracles, cleansed the temple, rejected by the Jews, died humiliating death. Isaiah 53 again is huge here. And if next, if next time, in fact, if you get a chance to talk to a, a Jewish person of that's a, that's a Jewish believer, a lot of Jews will be are atheists. I'll tell you. Since the Holocaust, I tell you, I don't believe it. I don't believe in God at all. But if you talk to one who says, yeah, I don't believe in Jew, but I don't believe in Jesus Messiah. I've done this before, and I've just read, I said, let me read something to you. And I, and I read Isaiah 53 without them seeing where I was in the Bible. And I said, who's that talking about? They said, Jesus. I said, Old Testament or New Testament? Well, New Testament. No, it's in Isaiah chapter 53. And that, that really that really gets me thinking. Okay. Uh, he's also prophesied to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven, to sit at God's right hand. That's just a, a taste of all the prophecies. You can you can get a list a lot longer list than that. Okay, also his sinless and miraculous life is evidence of his deity. He was he lived without sin. And these guys, remember who are writing this? Who lived with him for three and a half years? Now, if you lived with me for three and a half years, you would not write that I was sinless. <laughs> but they could write it because he was. And of course, he lived a miraculous life, confirming who he was. I see Jesus' resurrection as evidence of his deity, and, and I think, to me, this is the biggest one. That he actually uh, rose from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was. Okay, both the Old Testament prophets and Jesus predicted his resurrection. And he actually died on the cross and was buried. And there's five proofs of his death. Blood loss, the cry of death, the medical sign of the separation of the blood and water around the heart when he was pierced with a spear. The Roman soldiers pronounced him dead. That's why they didn't break his legs. Remember that? And they would break his legs, you know, to kind of speed things up. They kind of get tired of this. We're <laughs> ready to go home and eat. So they finally just, because they had to push up and breathe, you know, push up to breathe. So they just break your legs. They can't push up anymore and you suffocate. When they go to Jesus, it's like he's, he's, already, he's already dead, so they don't break his legs. Which was another fulfilled prophecy. Not one of his bones will be broken. Yeah. So he's already dead. They don't break his legs, and the Romans 
They do their, they know they know someone's dead or not. And that's why put that's why he stuck the spear. They saw the separation in the cardiac sac that proved that he's been dead and they had other ways to know I'm sure too, but they pronounced him dead. And I need you bald, embalmed, and so that's uh it's hard to come back from. So he rose bodily from the grave. And uh, there's some Frank Morrison, by the way, this is a classic book. Another book, if you want to read a classic, is Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. He was an attorney who decided he would disprove Christianity. And guess what happened to him? He became a Christian. And he wrote this book. But these are some of the things he dealt with in the book that you might find interesting. And, and he actually comes out the right side as he deals with it. So one of the things that I like to add to this, you might want to just write a note, is that... Remember why? Remember what the disciples preached. The disciples did not preach the resurrection this way. He rose from the dead, and we believe it to be true. That's not what they preached. What did they preach? He rose from the dead, and we saw it. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. And then later on, when they were told stop preaching the resurrection. What do they say? We cannot stop speaking about this in Acts chapter 4. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And so, that's why they died martyr deaths based on what they saw, not what they believed. This is important. Because you got eyewitnesses here. And again, in a court of law, in our land, a you know, few eyewitnesses, you're going to jail, right? And he had over 500 eyewitnesses here that saw the resurrected Christ and were so convinced about it that they were willing to die preaching about it. And we're not, they could not stop. I didn't stop talking about what you saw, right? right. Don't, don't talk about it anymore. I saw it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll, we'll hurt you. So? I saw it. We'll kill you. I can't. What am I going to do? I saw it. He's alive. And so, if he is resurrected from the dead, that means he must be who he said he is. He said he is God come in the flesh. As God come in the flesh, he cannot lie. So what does he say now about this book? That's where we're going next. Alright? So next handout. Let's see. I don't know what colors you are. Okay. Let's go to the one that says inspiration and errancy of the Bible. What color is that? Lavender. Lavender. <laughs> see? Now my shirt here. Tracy and I were on the Mount of Olives one time sitting down under an olive tree in wild lavender looking over you know over to the hill of uh, Mount Zion and and I thought is this the coolest thing ever oh no kidding (laughs) I don't even know if you can do that anymore because that's you know it's all West Bank you know so I never heard you over there okay now let's just review this right here this is the outline of the overall argument and it goes like this. Just for review, God exists. We know this from general revelation. That's the cosmological argument 
something exists, nothing cannot produce something, therefore something must have always been. And something must have always been, cannot be the universe. It's finite and changing. Therefore, God must exist. Or the teleological argument from design, this design proves you must be a designer. That's that simple. Okay? God exists. Known from general revelation. And that's in Romans chapter 1. Paul's calls it based on what you know, the creation of the world. It's clearly it's, it's, it's uh, obvious that there must be a God. Okay. B. Miracles are possible since God exists. The instant universe, there's miracles. C. Miracles confirm Christ to be God. New Testament documents are historically reliable. New Testament manuscripts are reliable copies. New Testament writers are reliable witnesses. New Testament says Jesus claimed to be God. Therefore, Jesus did claim to be God. The miracles confirm Jesus claimed to be God. Therefore, Jesus is God. Whatever God teaches is true. God can't lie. Now, here's where we are right now. E. Jesus taught the Bible is the Word of God. We're about to see that. Therefore, the Bible is the Word of God. That's what we're trying to get. Okay? Because then from the Bible is the Word of God, we're going to say what it teaches. It teaches that Christianity is a religion. And we're going to get there, and now we're going to talk about a couple big questions. What about those you never heard? And if God were evil? Okay? So I kind of see where we're at for the rest of our afternoon. All right, so let's go through some of this. Roman Two, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. It's authority. Let's just look at some of these verses here. Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 43. Wait a second. That's not right. It's not verse. It's... Uh, Here and I can't think of where I was going for. All right, let's skip that one. Come down to liability. 26, 54. I'll, I'll find that during the break and fix it for you. 26, 54. How then shall the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen this way? That's an important statement. View the scriptures. Whatever it says must happen. It must happen. So word of God, it must happen. If nothing else can happen different than it. It's got authority. It's got power. It will drive the future. Okay. Liability. All right, Matthew chapter four. Let's go there. This is where Jesus finality, where he says, actually, he's dealing with this temptation account here. And he ends every argument with the word. Satan tempts him each time. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. End of argument. The word of God is spoken. It's final. There's nothing else to debate. Okay, that's what we mean by finality. He says that every time. He quotes a verse every time. Dealing with the devil, which is a good thing to do when the devil comes at you, by the way. And you get, those, you get temptations that come as your own thoughts. Speak the word back to it. All right, Luke 16. 
and verse 31. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, it's the Old Testament, neither will they persuade him if someone rises from the dead. So in other words, it's sufficient. It's sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient. It's covered what we need to know. Covered what we need to be able to have to make the right choices. Okay, here's a big one. Indestructibility, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. If I can just go to one verse, I'd probably go to this one. Just because it, I think it shows how, how every, not down to every letter, even every part of the letter is authoritative in the Old Testament that Jesus is speaking about. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I do not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, or not one jot or till, to pass from the law until all is accomplished. Y'all know what a jot and tittle is? I think some of you probably have heard me explain this. And the, uh, the jot is like the dotting of an eye. It's that small. Part of a letter. And the tittle is really even more insignificant than that. It's part of a letter that makes a letter a different letter. By, by just, there is a letter. Look up here. There's one letter in Hebrew. This actually, this happens twice in Hebrew. There's a letter that the letter looks just like this. Top almost connects like this. There's another letter. It's the same exact letter, but the top comes across like that. The tittle is a part that comes across. It makes it a different letter. And Jesus says, "Not one tittle will pass away without being fulfilled." In other words, down to not just not just the sentences, not just the words, not just the letters, down to the parts of the letter will be fulfilled down to that detail so he's, he's making a, a, quite a case here okay then we have unity let me just see what else we want to do here let's go to let's go to John 3 you guys don't want to be sleeping on Mary no nope. alright Okay. Actually, let's go to John 17. I want to go to that one. So I'm kind of cutting some verses there. John 17, 17. Where Jesus says, when he's praying for his followers, and by the way, we're included in this prayer. John 17, 17, he says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we, we know what Jesus thought about the Old Testament. You know it is you know, it's unbreakable, indestructible, authoritative, inerrant. Then he goes on to promises the New Testament. Let's look at two places. John 14, 26 and 16, 13. John 14, 26. Let's see 25 and 26. John 14, 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit and the Father, will send in my name. He will teach you all things 
and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Okay? And then John 16, verse, starting verse 12, all the way through 15. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has in mind, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So he's promising the Holy Spirit is going to come and guide the disciples in truth, in revelation. And so there's a promise that the disciples will be able to be led, guided, to write the Word of God in the New Testament. So basically, Jesus stands between the Testaments and says the Old Testament is the Word of God, and the New Testament will be the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is going to make sure of that. And the guide the disciples in writing it. So, hence both the Old Testament and New Testament are the Word of of God. Now here's a couple objections. One would be the accommodation theory. And Jesus just, he did not affirm inspiration. He just accommodated himself to a Jewish view. Now did Jesus ever accommodate himself to like any view that was not right? You know, is that consistent with what you read? Of course not. This, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. Okay, the limitation view. Since Jesus was you, he's limited in knowledge and hence ignorant on this topic. Reply, Jesus had supernatural knowledge. He had all authority in heaven and earth. He said, truly, truly, verily, verily, truly, truly, 25 times. He understood that he was speaking with authority. Indeed, Jesus emphasized his authority. And then when he said, I say unto you, Jesus understands exactly what he was doing. Conclusion, if Christ is God, the Bible is the Word of God. If the Bible is not the Word of God, Christ is not God. Logically, Christ's deity and Bible's authority are directly related. Okay, just for... Now, that really finishes the train of thought as far as Jesus says it's the Word of God, it's the Word of God. Now, what does it say? It says the Christian angel and truly. that really is a full line of thought. But i got some more information here. I just want to briefly go over with you about inspiration. And now we're going to move on to some other things here. Give ourselves plenty of time. I want to have some time for question and answer before we go to some other stuff. Okay. Inspiration, two basic texts. If you're going to memorize two verses on inspiration, these are the two to memorize. First of all, inspiration is spirit moved writers, and inspiration is God breathed writings. Okay? Spirit moved writers. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. Men moved by the Holy Spirit okay, spoke from God. Okay, they wrote, they're moved by the Spirit. It wasn't just men's personality. Men's personalities are intact, but it's the Spirit of God moving them to write. And then, Second Timothy 3, 16, a lot of you probably have this one memorized. Who wants to quote it for us? All Scripture is given by God. Huh? And it's talking for reproof, correction. That's real close. Yeah. 
Okay, all yeah, all scripture is God breathed. Sometimes you might say inspired, God breathed, given by God. All scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. The command of God might be yeah, adequately, thoroughly equipped for every good deed. Okay. So the Bible clearly refers to itself as being inspired, doesn't it? Now, we didn't start out that way, though, did we? <laughs> if we start off saying, well, the Bible's word of God because it says it is, yeah. then that would be circular reasoning. The way we just went about it was not circular reasoning. It was linear because what we did is we said the Bible, we just proved the Bible was historically accurate, reliable, and then we talked about in that book, this historical document, Jesus claimed to be God and proved it. And then Jesus, who proved to be God, says of it, it's the Word of God. So that's not a circular reason. But now we're, now we're actually going to go and say, yeah, we're going to add on to that. The Bible says this is fire. Okay? Did I lose anybody just then? Okay. All right. Other descriptions. Okay, Deuteronomy 18, 18. I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. 2 Samuel 23, 2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. Isaiah 59, 21. My words which I have put in your mouth. 2 Chronicles 34, 14. The book of the law of the Lord given by the hand of Moses. Zechariah 7, 12. The words which the Lord of hosts has sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Matthew 22, 43. How does David and by the Spirit call Him Lord. So David is speaking in or by the Holy Spirit. According to Matthew 22. Acts 4, 24, 25. God who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David did say. Hebrews 4, 7. He, God, saying through David, saying through David, said before. So he's speaking through David. Okay? So, what we have here is clearly taught God speaking through human instruments. Alright? Here's a theological definition of inspiration. This is a guy named Warfield. Inspiration is a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Holy Spirit of God by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. Another one Inspiration is the inexplicable power which the divine spirit put forth of old on the authors of Holy Scripture in order to give them guidance, either in the employment of the words they used, and to preserve them alike from all error and from all omission. So what we're saying is in the original manuscripts, what they wrote was without error by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So here's the essential elements of the definition. Divine origin is from God. Human agency is through men. Written verbally in words. In the autographs, the original words are saying, we're talking about the original writings. Final authority and normative for believers and without error. Okay? Now, if... Okay. I had something I could write on here. 
If I wrote a statement, I tell you, write the statement down, turn it back and, and then just sheet of paper on like a white side of the handout somewhere and get one. Okay, we have Mark. Oh, here we go. Thanks, Ken. Okay. Now, I spell error. E. Somehow it didn't look right. Y'all want to write a word down and go, that don't look right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. This, can everybody see this? Y'all see this? Over in? Yeah. Bottom phrase. God cannot hear. Now, most people agree with that, right? God cannot hear. Okay? So, you start off conversation, and I just say, and I, and I cover all this up, and say, you do this, God can I hear? And so, yeah, I agree that statement, okay. Do you agree? Okay. And I, and I, looked, I looked up and said, okay, do you agree this? The Word of God cannot hear. Now, they might still go, oh, what do you mean? No, the, you said the Word of God cannot, God cannot hear, right? The word of God cannot hear. Okay, I'll give you that one. Then I uncover this part. The Bible, which is the word of God, cannot hear. So I don't know about that one. So wait a second, now, what, what, what was the problem? You know, because a lot of people say, yeah, the Bible is the word of God, but has errors. And, but if God cannot hear, and the word of God cannot hear, and the Bible, which is the word of God, cannot hear. There's not any error. And he said, well, you said that some of the copy thing. What I'm saying is, some of the copies have error, but we have enough of it together to pull out exactly what the truth is. We have it. But there's whole debates and denominations about, does the Bible have errors? I'm telling you, once you, get into, once you get into that, you will be on a slippery slope. Once you start to pick and choose, and say, well, I'm not really sure because you know, there's error. Then it won't be long before you don't even have a gospel preaching anymore. I mean, it is a battle worth holding on to and fighting for. But the Word of God is infallible and errant. And because there's some denominations that's given into that, and they're dead, and they're, they're going to be short lived. It really, it really does matter, matter that we, we view the Bible as being infallible and inerrant. Again, now the definition is infallible error in the original manuscript, and what we're saying is we have no copies in terms of what the original manuscript said. Okay. Okay. Let's see what else we want to do here. Suggested definition. You talk about one that tries to make sure it covers everything. Here is the long definition. Inspiration is a supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit who through the different personalities and literary styles of the chosen human authors 
invested the very words of the original 66 books of Holy Scripture alone and in their entirety as the very word of God without error and all that they teach including history and science and is thereby the infallible rule and final authority for faith and practice for all believers that's a mouthful isn't it yeah. Right Must have been written by a British person. Okay. Okay, and here's some other important uh, passages on the character, theological character of Scripture. is holy, indestructible, infallible, authoritative, and powerful, and indefeasibility. <laughs> in other words, it will accomplish what it's set forth to do. And without air. Okay. Okay, let me just let's look at the next one real quick. I'm not going to cover all this, but I want to have time for question and answer just a moment before we change subjects. But the inspiration extends to, again, the, the writings, the words, the tenses, the letters, the smallest parts of the letters. And we've covered some of this. Now, Go to inerrancy defined, next page. And I just, there's just one. The nature of the prophet was God's mouthpiece, divine authority. Covered a lot of this already, but it is written as unbreakable, it's imperishable. Turn to John 10.35. I just, just like this verse. So I want to read it. John 10.35 Verse 34 Jesus answered Has it not been written in your law? I said you are God's Now he's making a long case here I'm not going to get into I just want to get into verse 35 If he called them God's To whom the word of God came Notice this next thing it says And the scripture cannot be broken I just love the way it sounds. The scripture cannot be broken. Cannot be broken. There's so much packed in that. Cannot be broken. It will come to pass. Everything it says will be done. It will bring forth the force of all of its prophecy and prediction. It will fulfill all of its promises. It cannot be broken. I just love that phrase. So I want to read it. Okay. All right. So... Uh, you can look at some of the stuff on your own. See so if there's anything else I'm going to cover. The, uh, the Bible you have sitting on your lap is the Word of God. There's lots of. There's a guy by the name of Carl Barth that is a neo Orthodox guy, and he came on the scene. And really, he, was, he came on a real liberal group. And so he was actually making a move back toward orthodoxy when he came out with a statement. But it was still a statement that we don't want to give into. And it was this. He said, the Bible is the word of God, kind of like if a meteor hit earth and you took the meteor, you know, then burned up or whatever or taken away and then left that imprint, the imprint of the meteor. He said, the word of God hit earth and its imprint is the Bible. Now, it sounds good at first. But what he's really doing, he's leaving room to say that this really isn't the Word of God, it's just the result of the Word of God hitting earth. 
But don't even get into that. This is the word of God. We have to hold that. This is the very word of God. Jesus treated it as such. Okay? And he confirms and, and guaranteed it to be so. And uh, we need to hold on to that. So be willing to go to the wall. If, if someone puts a gun to your head and says, Would you die saying you believe it's the word of God or you want to live and say it's not? Take the bullet. Okay? Do not lose this battle. Because you give, you give in to, to that, it's a slippery slope before you know it. You don't even have a Savior anymore. That's where a lot of denominations, you know, on the seminaries, almost, you know, almost every college that when it first was, was born in this country was, was taught the scriptures. Yeah. You know, Harvard was, Harvard started in 1626. Isn't that the oldest university? Jamestown, 1620, right? Harvard, 1626. You're talking about right, by the way. Do you know that to enter Harvard, in the early days, you had to be able to read Greek and Hebrew from your Bible to get into Harvard? Wow. Wow. Very cool. I mean, in, in the average school, the Yale started off as a Christian school, and all these schools, Princeton, all of them started. The average one lasts 52 years before it goes liberal. That's the average. 52 years. It holds the ground on the Bible being the Word of God for 52 years. And then we start chipping away at it. And now these schools are very different, aren't they? The longest, you know, school has a record for how long it stayed, you know, Bible believing conservative. That's a conservative, I mean, you believe the Bible is inerrant and inspired word of God. I'm not talking about politically right now, okay? You what know, school holds the record? Princeton went 112 years before the next start sliding down the slope. And so it's, 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 you got to dig your heels in on this one, guys. Dig your heels in on the Bible. It is God's inspired and follow inherent word. Okay? Let's take a break. And then we're going to come back and talk about some questions that you have. And then we're going to lead into some two big questions. Two of the biggest questions that I never ever get are, if, uh, what about those who never heard? And if God were evil. Okay? If God, why evil? In other words, you know, if God, how can all these horrible things are happening? How about this? How can it be a God if all this is happening? If God, why evil? Okay? Alright, so what do you say? Uh, what time is it? Uh, okay, so we got uh, 20 till. How about, can we get 10 minutes? Yep. 10 minute break, and we'll, we'll get after it. We're going to finish at 3 o'clock. Alright.